Shakala. It means holy worship. Join me, your host, Robert Randall, as we delve into biblical instrumentation and music history to discover the sounds behind the words of our Savior, Yeshua Messiah. Yeshua Messiah. Good afternoon, family in Jesus Christ. I'm your host, Robert Randall. Welcome once again to Season 3, Episode 1 of Kadoshika Holy Worship, Understanding the Music of the Bible, the sounds behind the words of our Master, Yeshua the Messiah. This is going to be covering Babylonian music. This may be a one to two part uh, undertaking to fully have a grasp of some of the concepts behind this, but I am confident that we'll cover enough generally that you'll have an idea, uh, at least to, to an extent, of some of the cuneiform manuscripts and the cultural practices that were used behind their writings as to how they used their instruments. But before we jump into this, we need to open up with a word of prayer. Abel Yon, the God that we worship, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we thank you for being able to spend this time with you and to be able to delve into a unique subject of musicology in ancient Babylon, a culture that stems back to the very first cities, the very first world order systems of government, control over mankind. We pray, Father, that our enrichment in this understanding would help us to understand not only Israel's role in Babylon and their part, as we know historically later on, as well as Greek and Islamic influence that we'll be looking at later on, and especially Christendom. So we dedicate this time to you, and we ask that your Holy Spirit be with us, and we ask that um, that you help us to clearly present everything here today, that everyone would be able to uh, appreciate this and have a greater appreci- appreciation for music history and the Word of God in general. So in Jesus' name, we dedicate this show to you. Amen. All right. Before we go into the main content, I want to focus a little bit on alphabets, ancient alphabets. Reason being is because um, the way that you want to understand how uh, how basically cuneiform and and the evolution of alphabets evolved is something that that must be understood and, and there is a there is a possible Hebraic connection. If you've seen the Exodus controversy that was put out by uh, by Thinkerman Films, uh, Tim Mahoney's series on the Exodus, really tried to uh, encase the debate between was Hebrew the first written language uh, by Joseph in Egypt and, and was the manuscripts of the Torah written by Moses. Um, this 
little excerpt that I have here uh, kind of encapsulates that evolution um, from what was a much larger alphabetic system to the 22 uh, alphabetic system that we're used to in Hebraic consonant function. So it says here, the first alphabet. Um, honestly, I, I don't remember where I got this. I think I might have gotten this from uh, from a Hebrew study that I did at a, at a Messianic church years and years ago. Um, I just found this as I was cleaning things. Um, I'm, and <laughs> I thought, boy, this would be a great introduction to this. The first alphabet. The Ugaritic alphabet. The Ugaritic alphabet, which first appeared in Syria around 1500 BC, was a step up from earlier forms of cuneiform writing. It was a, it was a true alphabet because... Its symbols stood for sounds in the language instead of, of entire words. It is named for for Ugarit, a large a large inter international port where communication was essential and needed to be simple. Toward the end of the twelfth century BC, people in Phoenicia uh, modern-day Lebanon, began to use a 22-letter uh, alphabet. Unlike the Ugaritic alphabet, this was, this was linear, and its, letters, uh, and its letters were made... One moment here to turn the page. Its letters were made uh, of lines instead of, instead of triangles. This was a very significant change that took place when different, when different writing materials began being used. On clay tablets, it was hard to do anything but impress simple pictures. But the, Phoenician, but, um, but, but the Phoenicians used papyrus, a smooth paper-like substance from the papyrus plants with a flat surface. <laughs> more suited to to the finer lines of of inner writing of linear writing now this excerpt goes on to talk about the greek alphabet and unfortunately it's faded out a bit uh, in certain areas so i'm not able to read it clearly but i wanted to give that introduction to you because we will be listening to ugarit and other languages, um, other other Babylonian uh, uh, language or multiple languages, really, and how they sounded to give you an idea of the culture that we're talking about. And again, this goes back to my idea and, and my understanding that most of what God worked with in creation and everything that that we see and understand comes from a scientific and God-given basis of frequencies. Delving into the main portion here of our content, when we examine the three primary cultures that contributed to music, as we understand it today, there is no better origin than Babylon. 
the very worldly lineage of Cain that started commerce and cities gave rise to music through J. Ball's inventions of the harp and the ugav in Genesis chapter 4, or the harp and the pipe, um, some would say. If you recall in season 2 on our on our debate surrounding the ugav, some believe it to be a pan pipe. Um, others believe to be uh, something that was that was it was the earliest rendition of what what would eventually become uh, an organ. And we, when we went through the various cultural understandings of what that could look like from an Oriental sense and from even a Roman uh, sense, and and the modern incarnation of of organs throughout the centuries. That being said, it was most likely considered a panpipe. And Genesis 4, really, if you look at that lineage compared to Genesis 5, you see the lineage of essentially what was uh, the lineage of, of Cain. And that Cain lineage brought about, not only did it bring about polygamy, but it brought about commerce and the subjection of man to man's rule in cities. So it's a very powerful tapestry of how the enemy's kingdom on earth brings man into a prison planet, as it were. To understand music at its earliest writing, written origin, we must not attribute Greek modes or scales, so major minor scales, for example, or the notion of intervals as practices used in Babylon. Now, intervals can be done in two forms. Intervals are seen as harmonic, which are two notes that are sung at the same time. For example, um, a C and an E on, are played together on a piano. Or, intervals are also considered melodic. For example, a C and an E are separately played or sung. C, E, that kind of thing. For an early, uh, for an early Western civilization, and its subsequent evolution to make sense, we must stick with the facts at hand. Carl Sachs says, this is Carl Sachs, he's a very prominent music historian. He says, in, des in describing non-Western music, be it Oriental or primitive, we must strictly refrain from misusing in, uh, um, incongruous concepts of Western music. The terminology that has been learned in music school applies to the harmonic structure of music and is inappropriate, indeed misleading, in distorting in descriptions of non-harmonic and non-Western music. So think of it this way, brethren. What, what we're talking about here is we cannot use Greek-Western inherited music theory in, in, in the sense of what you learn in music books or in music school to understand this type of music. You have to have a new mindset. So for anyone who, uh, 
who came out from the world into a Christian church, they had to get a new mindset to understand who is Jesus Christ. What is the Holy Bible? What is the Holy Spirit? Imagine that you're a Christian taking uh, an Alpha course for the first time or a Christianity Explored uh, course for the, for the first time to understand Jesus in the Bible as, as a baby Christian. That's what we're dealing with here. It, it's a complete new mindset. Now imagine you've been in Christianity for 10 years and all of a sudden... God's opening up the Hebraic side of the faith to you. Like many of the listeners on this show understand, you have to, to, to learn a whole new way of life and a whole new mindset. Does that mean that you, that you disregard what you learned uh, from, from your, your original background? No, certainly not. And I'm not saying that here. I'm just saying in terms to understand this Eastern type of music, we cannot... We can't essentially rely on our Western foundations. We can use those Western foundations to communicate what these texts talk about and the theory and the music theory behind it. But we can't exclusively state uh, within the texts themselves that they are attributed to a Western mindset of music theory or a Western understanding of how music was used. Now, this is where the main debate comes into play. There are two sides to this debate when examining um, Assyriology cuneiform tablets regarding musical structures. The mainstream argument since the 1960s by Dr. Ann Kilmer, who is Professor Emeritus of Assyriology at UC Berkeley, is that her position is that Babylonians had an understanding of ascending scales as well as an understanding of harmonic intervals. While I was unable to find any formal lectures by Dr. Kilmer on this specific debate, there were a number of scholastic papers published online regarding this, which we'll take a look at in a little bit. There were some short interviews on Lorna Gover's YouTube channel. We're going to take a listen now to Dr. Kilmer's details on the Hurrian song cuneiform tablet and its background in Babylonian music culture and how the Hurrian song was used in religious devotion and worship to various Babylonian deities. Let's take a listen now. I am here with Dr. Ann Kilmer, Professor Emeritus from uh, UC Berkeley, uh, Professor of Assyriology. And we're going to talk a little bit about life in ancient Mesopotamia. So Anne and I did four pieces with her replica of the Silver Lyre. Um, one was called the Hurrian Cult Song, and one was called the Incantation for Baby Quietening, another the Flood Narrative from the Gilgamesh Epic, and the fourth a Sumerian Drinking Song. So Anne, what do these texts tell us about life in ancient Mesopotamia. The Hurrian cult song, of course, comes from Rask Shamra, ancient Ugarit, which is right near the Mediterranean coast. So it's not Mesopotamia proper, but uh, the culture is in many ways much the same. It's sort of a more Western version of it. <clears throat> and of course, it's all part of the cult and the cultic pantheon that existed not only in ancient Sumer and Akkad, but also among the Hittites and the Hurrians and so forth. And um, although the Hurrian culture 
named its gods with its own names, they are almost in many cases exact counterparts to the Babylonian, Mesopotamian, Babylonian pantheon. And in this particular case, one of the main gods of those pantheons was the moon god. And like all gods in the ancient world, uh, they have a consort. There's never just one. There's, if it's a male, it's got a female. If it's a female, it probably has a male with the possible exception of the goddess Inanna Ishtar. And so in this case, this uh, cult hymn is one of 70 fragments found at that site, all dating to roughly 1400 B.C., and it's a hymn to the moon goddess, and we know it's the moon goddess because her name is in there. The content of the hymn is, in all likelihood, has to do with fertility and childbirth. And that would make sense for the moon goddess to be uh, involved in protecting that sort of, that realm. And um, <clears throat> since our knowledge of Hurrian is imperfect, let me say, we, we know a lot, but we don't have as large a vocabulary uh, for Hurrian as we do for Akkadian or for even for Hittite or Sumerian and so forth. So we believe that it's all about uh, asking for, I don't know what it's asking for, it doesn't spe specify they're asking for an easy childbirth, but something of that sort. And so that reflects a typical part of um, ancient Near Eastern religious culture and beliefs. And we don't know for whom the hymns were written, very possibly not for Mrs. Common Man, but maybe only for the priests and priestesses in the temple. I think we know a lot more about temple activities and what the priests were doing and writing and composing, and we don't know that much about the common man or woman and what they believed and how they practiced, but they certainly did go to the temples, and the temples in general were well supported by the public. The other side of this debate comes from competent Assyriologists who argue that Babylonians had no knowledge of Western ascending scales, let alone how to produce harmonic intervals. That the argument goes that harmonic intervals did not make a mainstream until about the medieval ages, going to the Renaissance, through perfect harmonies, perfect fourths and perfect fifths, uh, monitored heavily by the church through Gregorian chant. Anything that deviated from those harmonies was considered of the devil or, or heretical. We're now going to take a listen to Richard Dumbrill, who, as you recall in season one, talked about the recreation and tuning of the Silver Lyre. It was our season finale. The argument here that Richard Dumbrill states in this debate says that Babylonians had no knowledge of Western scales or harmonic notes. They had no written way of communicating that. They may have played those notes, but they had no written way of communicating it. So this is his take on the issue as an archaeomusicologist. Let's take a listen. It all started, you see, I've been reminded, I should say this. It all started in 1960. What happened in 1960? When it was for the first time that a tablet mentioning musical terms popped up in the University of Philadelphia. Professor Landsberger, uh, who was teaching uh, Assyriology to a young uh, student called Anne Kilmer, 
had his drawer there, and he opened it. You know, oh, listen, uh, my dear, here's a tablet, you know, have a crack at it during the weekend. And Ankim, uh, as it was done at the time, took the tablet, put it in her pocket, went home. Today you couldn't do that at all, I mean, you would be shot immediately, uh, and perhaps worse. And, and she looked at the tablet, and there was one sign which straightway attracted the attention of the young student. So, this young scholar found a series of signs with numbers, and she straightway, because there were only seven numbers written, and because she played the piano when she was about five or six years old, for six months or so, she said, ah, that's music, and it must be a heptatonic scale, because we've got seven degrees, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and it must be astounding. Here is the text in question. It's called CBS 10996, because CBS is the catalogue of Babylonian section, and 10996 is the field number. Uh, Kilmer decided straight away that these numbers were, of course, the evidence straight away of a system which was heptatonic, as I've said to you, and that it was ascending. And of course, that it was equal temperament. <laughs> Why not, after all? Because we all sing in equal temperament. Uh, she didn't know much about music at all. And the problem is that her teacher, Bino Lonsberger, knew absolutely nothing about music, although he was an excellent essayologist. And she presented the work to Samuel Noah Kramer, who was a super authority, uh, especially with the flood tablet and other texts, who was the most eminent sumerologist uh, uh, up to this day. And these two guys had no knowledge about uh, music at all. And they said, if Kilmer, if Anne, find that this is heptatonic uh, ascending, she must be right. And therefore, on the authority of Kramer and Lanzberger, she was put in the press as a leading discovery. <laughs> you know, 3,000 years BC ago, they had an system, uh, and it was ascending, you know. But this is not enough. You wouldn't know all as, uh, as musicologists or music historians of having anything to do with music. That you, in order to prove that, you need more. So, uh, she decided that the Babylonian music system was heptatonic, the system was ascending, the intervals listed were harmonic, they were a tuning system, there were catalog intervals given to composers for their creations. How the hell can you derive this from the tablet in question? You cannot. The interesting thing is that she decided, at number three, that the intervals listed were harmonic. Let us play together. This never happened in the whole history of it. This, this happens much later. In order to have these uh, intervals played together, we have to wait uh, for the Ecole Notre Dame, you know, and not before. The vertical reading of music is a thing which doesn't come spontaneously. It is the result of centuries of centuries of, of knowing how things progress horizontally and the relationship between the notes horizontally, which allow for a superimposition of these systems through different devices, which is going to be heterophony, then uh, polyphony, and then eventually create harmony. So suddenly she erased about 2,000, 3,000 years 
of a music revolution and decided that it was harmonic intervals. Uh, the basis, there was no basis for it. It, it was only an intuition. All right, brethren, so that was Richard Dumbrell's take on this debate regarding CBS 1997, that particular cuneiform tablet. Now, although it is a bit tongue-in-cheek, I don't think he obviously takes this seriously as some nefarious conspiracy, and I'll explain why. He makes two critical points that I think hold a lot of water. One is of equal temperament of pitches, and that is something that was later developed for frequencies. A440 is our modern orchestration frequency for tuning orchestras, much like Steve Reese's episodes on the Calming Harp on Hebrew Nation Radio talk about frequencies that convey fire or convey a calm, uh, a God frequency, if you will, 777, that kind of a thing. So there's there's a lot here that I think uh, scientifically and, and, and historically holds a bit more weight in terms of what Babylonians would have known versus not have known. Now, could they have played harmonies and not known what they were? Certainly. They, they just We just have no written record that they wrote down harmonies, let alone in the Western senses we would understand it, um, because this is an Eastern type of music, and we'll, we'll discuss that more in depth in the next episode. I think Dr. Kilmer's paper on Mesopotamian music since, since 1977 that goes through the evolution of this really early study of music history and cuneiform seriology as a young science and a young history really speaks to that this is in its infancy. So we're still growing and understanding this as we continue to discover more. She says, Dr. Kilmer says, at the, at the conclusion of this paper, any and all new information concerning ancient Near Eastern music theory and practice is not only welcome, but also continues to generate a certain excitement among cuneiformists, music historians, and the general public. It has been the case since the 1970s when our evidence from cuneiform tablets first became known worldwide. That concludes the quote by Dr. Kilmer. And I think we need to bear in mind that while Assyriology translating Babylonian clay tablets and biblical scholarship, as well as textual criticism, have centuries of academia behind them, the music that comes into play, or the musical scholarship, is the controversy. And there's no concluding debate behind this, whether you agree with Dr. Kilmer or Richard Dumbrill. So this is something that you can really delve in on your own and see for yourself and come to your own conclusions. Next episode, we're going to be delving into the musical systems written on these tablets. How are they originally written? What, if any, can Western music theory be applied to give some context, uh, some, some structure to these musical notes? And if so, do the writings convey an Eastern mindset of music? And if so, what were the impacts of that music on other cultures like Greece and Islamic cultures as well? So stay tuned for that in episode two on Babylonian music in this final season of Kadoshika Holy Worship. I want to give a shout out to Hebrew Nation Radio and Intervision FM. I want to thank Johnny and Roland and everybody at these radio stations for their financial support 
and their prayers and contributions to Getting Holy Worship on the air. We are also on your favorite podcast provider. Don't forget to check the podcast description for video links on the audio that was presented here today. And with that, have a happy Thanksgiving and a blessed Sabbath. Cherish the ones that you love. And with that, I'm Robert Randall signing out. Tune in next time for part two of our Babylonian musical unveiling. Shalom, everybody.